I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And doesn't it feel like when we hear the phrase growing up these days, we only tend to reference the growth in inches and feet? But for a child to grow up, they don't just need to physically grow, they need to grow mentally and emotionally as well. The recent cultural normalization of what is colloquially referred to as helicopter parenting has brought with it ever-hovering adults and minute-by-minute scheduled weekdays and weekends, which has significantly stunted that growth. Our guest this week shares both the data and the anecdotes that help to illustrate exactly why children need the freedom to grow independent. After her newspaper column, Why I Let My Nine-Year-Old Ride the Subway Alone, created a media firestorm, Lenore Skenazy got the nickname America's Worst Mom. She went on to write Free Range Kids, The Book Turn Movement, and she has been profiled in The New Yorker and has lectured everywhere from DreamWorks to Microsoft to schools across America. And let's not forget the Bulgarian Happiness Festival. On TV, you may have seen her on The Today Show, The Daily Show, or her reality show, World's Worst Mom. Now, Lenore is co-founder and president of Let Grow, the national nonprofit promoting childhood independence. She lives in New York with her husband and beloved computer, and her kids, who are now much older than they were in 2008, are gainfully employed. Lenore, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, they're way older. One of them's having a birthday today. Oh my God, they're like 92 and 93, basically. Well, happy birthday. Happy birthday to them. Thank you. That's the weird thing about time. It moves on. We could talk about that. (laughs) There we go. Yes. We'll make it a long philosophical discussion. But actually, (laughs) speaking of birthdays, we spoke a little bit about this before the recording, but a friend of mine recently had a birthday for their one-year-old child in January. And I participated in this birthday. It was over in Burbank here in Los Angeles. And as I was kind of enjoying the birthday and watching the children play, I noticed what can only be described as something like out of a kids in the hall sketch, where basically even children as old as four or five years old in, in this playground were always being monitored by their parents, maybe four or five feet away, as if somehow climbing up a plastic set of stairs or going down a metal chute might be too dangerous for them to handle. And I'd like to tie what happened in January of 2021 to what you experienced with your then nine-year-old in March of 2008. Now, after your son had been asking you for several weeks or maybe even months to ride the subway alone, you finally let him. You left him at a New York City Bloomingdale's with a Metro card, a $20 bill, and a few quarters, and asked him to meet you back at your New York City apartment, which he did, and he was so excited to have done it. But When you wrote an article about it, it kind of created a firestorm. And now when I Google you, when anyone Googles your name, you show up, as I mentioned in your intro, as America's Worst Mom. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how that came to be. Well, I I think you just thumbnailed it. Having allowed our son to take the subway by himself, and I'm a newspaper columnist by trade, so I wrote, why let my nine-year-old ride the subway alone? And two days later, after the column, I was on the Today Show, MSNBC, Fox News, and NPR, And that was just sort of the beginning of this um, intense, I'd say, fascination originally in America, but then later on sort of around the world with anyone who would let their kid do something that was perceived to be this, I don't know, grown up or dangerous or bold. And I didn't think it was any of the above. I thought it was normal. And my nine-year-old was always on the subway with us. So it wasn't a a strange new experience. We live here in the city. I'm a newspaper reporter by trade. So I know that my city is at a 50-year crime low. So it was strange that the culture decided that 
this would be, I, I, I wouldn't say it was the first mom shaming ever, but it, it became like sort of the template for like, how dare a mother take her eyes off her kid? And was this something that you were at least aware of on a local level before it became national? As in, when you were talking about stuff like this with your fellow parents, even before you let your son ride on the subway alone, had you noticed that the culture had changed from when you were a child, for instance, or was the blowback from this so large that it kind of opened your eyes to how much things had changed? I would say both. I mean, I when I looked back through old columns of mine, because it's sort of like a diary, I realized I'd written a couple about my son is five and I'm letting him go to the bathroom at the theater by himself, stuff like that. On the other hand, flitting thoughts had occurred to me as I was raising my kids. Like every morning, I was one of the people dropping off the kids at the school. And my mom hadn't done that, but it didn't occur to me to wonder, like, why are we all here? Because we were all here, right? The gang was all there. All the parents were with all the kids. I also find myself going to the doctor with them a lot, like whenever they had a sore throat or a sniffle. And I thought, like, gee, when I was a kid, we'd go in for our annual checkups and we didn't see the doctor much. You know, the doctor was sort of this intimidating, far-off person as opposed to somebody that we sort of liked because we saw them frequently. So I saw that the culture was changing, but I hadn't really focused on why or what that was doing to me or my kids or the culture in general. Yeah, it sounds kind of like the story of the frog in the boiling water, right? You turn the boiling up slowly but surely, and you don't really notice you're being cooked until it's too late. And it sounds kind of like a similar phenomenon, right? I imagine if you teleported someone from the 60s or 70s into the 90s or 2000s or 2010, they would have noticed the massive change that had happened in how we treat children and how children understand themselves. But over the course of the decades, it sounds like people just kind of accepted it for what it was. And I want to dig into this with you later in the talk about how it's not even just about having your child ride a New York subway that feels like a a bridge too far for many parents, but even simple things like running their own lemonade stand. And I'd I'd like for us to get there over the course of this talk. But I want to reference something that you referenced in one of your videos, which is Sesame Street. So I grew up with Sesame Street in the 1980s and a little bit of in the early 1990s. But I want to talk briefly about what is known as Sesame Street Old School. It's a two DVD set of episodes from 1969 to 1974. And before you can watch a single episode on this DVD set, there's a warning that says the following is attended for adult viewing only. Now, Lenore, I haven't seen this set personally, but I believe you've done the research. What is so dangerous on this DVD set? Well, I guess it's a question of whether you're a lawyer or a normal human being. If you're a lawyer, I guess everything. And if you're a normal human being, especially one who grew up watching it, you'd think nothing. I mean, what do you see? You see kids playing in a vacant lot. You see kids climbing a jungle gym. You see, I guess this is terrifying. You see a girl walking around Sesame Street, which looks pretty safe to me. And some neighbors show her around, people that she doesn't know. I I guess she meets a guy in a garbage can. Maybe that's a little unsettling these days. But really, the kids aren't wearing helmets is the other thing when they're riding their tricycles. But of course, they're like, you know, a foot off the ground. The thing that I think the lawyers must have objected to, because I've seen subsequent like remakes of Sesame Street, is that the kids weren't supervised all the time. When they're playing follow the leader, the leader is, you know, five or six years old, you know, or maybe an incredibly cool seven-year-old. But it's certainly not a kindergarten teacher. It's not a mom. It's not a PhD in child development studies who is leading the children appropriately and carefully around. It's kids playing with each other. And We've lost all confidence 
in the idea that kids can do anything on their own safely or successfully. And so the lawyers slapped this warning on it. In your view and in your experience with Free Range Kids and the LECRO organization, which we'll talk about shortly, but in your research of this over the last decade plus, is it the dog wagging the tail? Is it the tail wagging the dog? Is it the lawyers who are stepping in? Is it the parents who are asking the lawyers to step in? I guess what I'm trying to figure out and what I think probably a lot of our listeners are curious about as well is how did this phenomenon begin? What was the snowball that started the avalanche that that brought the, the mountain down? Why I'm asking is, like, if you take my parents' generation, right, they grew up in the 1950s and 60s. And my dad has stories about how growing up in Central California, the nearest movie theater was something like 12 miles away. And it was not uncommon for him and his brothers to get on a bus, go an hour or, you know, more, go to the movie theater, watch five movies that day for like a dollar or some ridiculous amount of money. And then the only thing that his mom told him and his brothers was, just be home in time for dinner. I don't care what you do all day, right? So if those are the kids that get raised, right? And then they have kids and then those people have kids. Why are quote unquote survivors of these dangerous childhoods, right? Where they knew nothing bad happened to them. Where along the chain are people becoming protective? Because if people are making it through childhood over and over again and doing just fine, why are parents getting more and more restrictive? What's causing it? Oh boy, that's a lot of questions rolled into one, <laughs> one, one big thing, like like popcorn. It's just gigantic. <laughs> let's let's like take little pieces of what you just said. One is where they knew that nothing bad happened to them. What's interesting is that if you talk to people, you know, your parents' age, bad things did happen. Somebody flashed them, or they got lost, or they fell off their bike. Nothing was perfect in their childhoods. And what's different is the idea that if something isn't perfect, that's okay. And the idea that a kid can roll with some of the punches. I was once interviewed on Jesse Ventura, had a talk show for a while, and he's the wrestler turned governor of Minnesota, turned talk show host. (laughs) What a sad chain of events. And the story he started telling me was of when he was about 10 years old, everybody loves to reminisce about their childhood. uh, He had fallen off his bike and and a sort of serious accident. He mangled his foot. He was two miles from home. And of course, there were no cell phones back then. And so the only way he could get home was to get back on the slightly mangled bike with the extremely mangled leg and pedal. <laughs> so he would like pedal with the one good foot and then wait for the, the, the pedal to come around again and then push it down again. And it took forever and it hurt like hell. And he got home and it turned out that he had broken his foot. Obviously, it didn't stop him from becoming a professional wrestler later, but you could say that it actually propelled him to be a professional wrestler later because look at what happened. He got hurt. He held himself together. He had the the physical and mental wherewithal to do what he had to do. He bit the bullet and he ended up home on his own steam. And that's a great story. And I think that's why he was telling it to me what, 50 years later or however many years later. And so right now, the moment is that we think that anything bad happening like that is devastating and so traumatizing that kids cannot recover from that. I'll just tell you one other quick story, and then we'll talk about how we got to this idea that children are completely vulnerable uh, on every level. My friend's mother, who was 80, was talking to me and what do I do? I run, you know, let grow. We're trying to restore childhood independence. We think the kids can handle a lot more than 
than the culture says they can. And, and somehow she started reminiscing about her own childhood. She grew up in New York City and she and her younger sister would go to the park and play. And one day some guy motioned for them to come over to his car. And so they did. And he rolled down the window and guess what he was pointing to, right? <laughs> it was, um, it wasn't popcorn. It wasn't just the steering wheel. It was something on his anatomy and it was throbbing. And, and, and the mom said to me, to this day, we still giggle about it. <laughs> so what I love about that story is not the asshole who's, uh, you know, exposing himself to little girls. It's the, it's the perspective that she had on it. I mean, back then, obviously it was shocking enough that she remembered it 70 years later, if not a few more, you know, 71, 72 years later, but also that nobody had told her that this was such a traumatizing event that for the rest of her life, she was going to have all sorts of psychological problems. And lest anyone think that I am making this a plea for, please, gentlemen, expose yourself to children. And if you can fall off your bike when you're a kid, please do. These are the best things that could possibly happen to you. That's, that's not my plea. My plea is to remember that kids are resilient. And once you can remember that, then you don't have to watch over everything they do, lest something, you know, a little bit difficult befall them because you know that they're going to be okay. So that's what's changed is the idea that a kid can be hurt physically, psychologically, emotionally, socially, and let's watch them recover as opposed to assume they never will. That's, that's the real big change is assuming that children are so fragile that any untoward event and, and you were talking about on the playground, you know, say they, they fell off a swing or they got too scared when they got to the top of the slide and had to climb down again. Like any of those are big deals. They're, they're not. Yeah. You know, Jonathan Haidt, who I know you're familiar with. He's my co-founder. Together we founded Let Grow. Which makes a lot of sense because in his article and book, Coddling of the American Mind, he talks about how children are anti-fragile rather than fragile. And yeah, this is such a sensitive topic to talk about in, in this one regard, and you, you kind of spoke to this just now, is obviously we don't want to undervalue real trauma and, and events that happen to people that can be hurtful. But the high wire act to walk when discussing this stuff is that, of course, trauma is real, but also the language or increasing language of trauma and harm can make people more susceptible to experiencing the harm itself in ways that can be damaging. In that if you tell someone repeatedly that what happened to them is harmful or traumatic, it will affect how they internalize it differently than had they been told something a little more obviously empathetic, but less alarming. The one thing that I can pull from my childhood just kind of off the top of my head is, I remember I fell off my bike. It wasn't as, uh, as bad as Jesse Ventura, but I remember I fell off my bike. I was biking around by myself, right? And I had kind of gotten to this habit of, I think I was five or six, and I'd gotten to this habit of if I was near my parents and I fell off and I scraped my knee or something, I would begin to cry. And of course, like my parents would run over, you know, oh, Michael, are you okay? Blah, blah, blah. And this time I was alone, right? And I fell off my bike and my instinct was, you know, to start crying, but there was no one there. And so the crying called no one over. And so eventually, and this is so funny, this was like a realization I was having at that age. I stopped crying and I was like, okay, wait, why am I crying right now? Because yes, it hurt a little bit. I scraped my knee. There's a little bit of blood there, but who am I crying for? And I, I just, I got back on my bike and, you know, I got a Band-Aid when I got home and it was fine, but it felt like I caught myself in that moment. Now, granted, I, I couldn't psychoanalyze myself to this extent at that moment, but I caught myself in that moment realizing that what I was doing wasn't really on my own behalf in regards to the harm that had been caused to me. 
but was rather kind of this reciprocal relationship that I had created with the adults around me. And in the absence of those adults, I realized that my crying really wasn't for anything. So then you discovered what you were made of, which is a kid who can handle some blood and some pain and get yourself home. And that's a milestone, right? I mean, that's why you remember it. That's why Jesse remembered his. This is when you start your hero's journey. Your hero's journey is not in the backseat in a five-point harness, you know, with your parents driving you to, to soccer practice. So that's really cool. So I, I write myself notes just to talk about different little things that you said. And one of the things you mentioned is that in the Coddling of the American Mind, Jonathan and Greg Lukianoff, his co-author, talk about the idea of anti-fragility. And anti-fragility doesn't mean just that things are less breakable than you think. It's a concept that has to do with things getting stronger when they are exposed to some difficulty. And the, the prime example is the immune system, right? The immune system has to encounter some germs to start building up the antibodies. I mean, we're certainly talking about that a lot these days to become stronger, right? And if you raise your kid in a bubble and they're not exposed to any germs, then they don't have a robust immune system and they are fragile. And similarly, bones, I mean, not that I do any exercise, but those who do exercise tell me that when you lift weights, you know, you're putting pressure on your bones there, you know, lift, lift, oh God, but that is what's building bone mass. And kids are anti-fragile too. And so they have to encounter some, some scrapes that are literal and figurative, some betrayals, some disappointment, some frustration to sort of develop the antibodies to those so that they can, you know, they're stronger as they grow up. And as we take these things out of our kids' childhood, they are becoming a little more fragile. And the best example that John gives in his book, In the Coddling of the American Mind, is the fact that for the last generation, up until very recently, we were told don't give kids peanuts until they're much older because they could develop allergies. And then lo and behold, finally a study is done. How come allergies keep going up through the roof? Peanut allergies. And it turned out that actually it's the opposite. <laughs> you have to expose kids to peanuts when they're very little so that they don't develop allergies to it. They acclimate to it. And that's sort of our, you know, pretty great analogy for what let grow is. When we define all of these episodes in the kid's life, any of the unpleasant ones as traumas, when we sort of bump up the the tragedy factor to not being invited to a birthday party or to, you know, having a scrape. And it's not like I like seeing my kids be frustrated or disappointed at all. It is extremely painful. I'll just admit it. But there's a couple things going on. One is we spend so much time with our kids that we see the arguments and the frustration and the, the general unfairness of life. And it makes us want to jump in. And in a way, that's, that's why we shouldn't be with them so much. Because when we're with them, we keep thinking like, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is going nowhere. Let me organize the game. Let me, you know, you apologize to him and he'll apologize to you. When we're always jumping in, then we start thinking we always have to be there because look, they weren't figuring it out on their own. But of course they weren't figuring it out on their own because we're there. Just like when you fell off your bike and your parents were nearby, of course you would summon them. What's the easiest thing? If I had a, a genie, I would have the genie making my dinner right now, you know, but you don't. And when you don't, that's when you start growing. So A, by spending so much time with our kids, we think we have to spend even more time with our kids because we see them unhappy a lot of the time. That's sort of part of childhood is not always getting your way. But the other thing I wanted to talk about is the definition of trauma, because I feel like people forget that there's another side of trauma. First of all, I don't, I don't mean real trauma. I don't mean somebody close to you dying. I don't mean a horrible accident. I mean, losing the World Series of Little League games, something that is you know sad and painful. 
but as much as we talk about post-traumatic stress syndrome or stress disorder, PTSD, apparently, and this is not me, this is psychologists I've read, there's actually something called post-traumatic growth, PTG. And nobody talks about that because it takes a while. You know, you have to get over the trauma first, but it is apparently more common. I think about 6% of people who've had real traumas end up with PTSD, but most people end up with growth. You recognize how dear your family is to you or how important friendships are to you, or you rededicate yourself to making your life meaningful or helping others. There's just, it's not a barren wasteland once something bad happens to you. And And until we remember that, we're going to think that anytime something bad happens, we're diminished. And that's not true. We grow. Yes. I do wonder why, as a society, we don't talk about post-traumatic growth as much. And perhaps it's a reticence to talk about how trauma could ever lead to something good. And I'm not sure why we're kind of allergic to that, right? To use the, the peanut metaphor. I'm not sure why we seem so averse now to understand that to go through hardship, makes us stronger people in the same way that to not only understand success, but to achieve true success, you must fail. And I feel like these two phenomena are quite similar. And it seems like in the business world, we have no problem talking about, especially in like the tech industry, for instance, that, you know, oh, I I had 10 startups and nine of them failed and, you know, only the 10th one succeeded, but it's because I did the previous nine, right? But for some reason, when we talk about children and we talk about hardship that children go through, we foreclose that part of the conversation and it just kind of boggles my mind. Yeah, it boggles my mind too. You start seeing things a certain way and it is hard to stop seeing them that way. Like I said, I was taking my kids to school every morning too, walking with them and I didn't even know why. It's just, you know, it's a culture that tells you that this is normal and that's what you think. And think of all the daytime talk shows. They don't talk about life is pretty good or isn't it great that we got over famine, you know, hooray for, you know, vanquishing polio. I mean, these do not bring in ratings. The ratings are, here's why you're sad or overweight, depressed. There was something that traumatic that happened to you. You were damaged and you never got better. And it's considered compassionate to recognize that trauma does hurt and occurs to people and that we don't all see it, you know, that it can be under the surface and people could look fine and actually they're hurting underneath, which I think is the human condition. But there's never the flip side of like, this is part of the human condition. It all adds up to you being you. And, you know, here you are part of the human race going forth, uh, you know, getting up and going to work in the morning. That's, That's a triumph. Let's celebrate it instead of thinking about how broken you are. Yes. I agree that so much of it seems like it is a media fabricated problem. And it seems like a cycle that can be really hard to get out of. You shared a statistic with me before we recorded, which I think is really instructive. The Department of Justice released um, under 17 kidnapping figures from 2011. And it was 105 children had been kidnapped. And out of those 105, and and this is a difficult stat, no matter how you cut it, 8% of that 105 ended in murder, right? So that's nine, about nine children. As of 2019, There are about 75 million people in America in that age range, up to about 17 or 18. And so 105 of those 75 million are kidnapped every year, you know, give or take. And nine of those 105 are murdered. So to put it another way, 0.00014% of America's children are kidnapped every year. And the overwhelming percentage of that 0.00014% make it home alive. And so I think it just goes back to what you were saying just a moment ago. I mean, how much of this is a modern, I don't know what other way to say it, but like hysteria 
that is driven by the advent of things like the 24-hour news cycle in which you know companies are incentivized to keep viewers gripped to their screens by discussing a handful of terrible stories repeatedly and then social media where people are sharing around oh you know this girl in Ohio or et cetera, et cetera, is missing. And then everyone sees it. So it feels like it's ever prevalent. And so it feels like one of the largest problems that parents have to address is you almost have to protect yourself from this information because it can poison your mind. Yeah. The question is, is there any way to create some, some gratitude as, a, as opposed to fear and anger? And it's really hard to create gratitude when, as you've just said, you know, eight children or nine children this year will be murdered by a stranger. And that is, that's an outrage and it's extraordinarily horrible and it is scary. How do you get any perspective on that? And I think that's what's changed. I feel like, you know, when I was five, way back when, my mom would let me walk to school because everybody did. They didn't walk their five-year-olds to kindergarten. It was just, that's just the way it was. And the difference was that a couple of things. One is she could not have named 10 kids who had been kidnapped and murdered. You know, Elizabeth Smart and Maddie McCann and J.C. Dugar. I mean, just it wasn't it didn't dominate the news. And so it didn't feel like we knew 10 people as it does once you've heard the stories and seen the pictures and watched the Christmas videos. Uh, it feels like, you know, th that this is happening all the time. How do I know? Well, I can I can name 10 of them. So so the fact that it wasn't that she didn't know these names, which made sense because she didn't know anybody who was kidnapped and murdered. I don't know anybody who was kidnapped and murdered. But the other thing is that now to be a good parent, you're supposed to be going through those. It's almost a catechism. Think about those kids, you know, and am I being a good enough person? Am I being careful enough? Am I doing justice to their memory, in fact? Uh, and if I am, I feel like I should never let my kids out of my sight because those parents did and look what happened to them. And so the norm becomes to be a good parent is to be thinking about those cases. I mean, that's what people were screaming at me for when I let my son ride the subway. It's like, well, don't you watch Law and Order? <laughs> don't you look at the statistics? Don't you, you know, what about Aton, a boy who was taken from his bus stop in 1979? What about Adam Walsh? It's a 1983, a horrible case. But it's almost like there was a religion <laughs> based on the sort of venerating of these sad, sad stories. And if you weren't referring to them in your daily life, you were blaspheming. You were saying, I think my kid's going to be okay. That's almost something you're not allowed to say because it presumes that you don't care. You recalled this in your original article about your son's journey on the subway, about how afterwards parents would come up to you and say, oh, Lenore, how would you feel if your son had been kidnapped? But the question that we don't seem to be asking enough is, what is lost if children aren't allowed to go through those formational experiences? What is lost in the child when they're not allowed to grow and to become more independent? That is a kind of real loss that we don't talk about, but we only talk about those 0.00014% of cases, but we don't talk about the vast majority of things that are lost when a child isn't allowed the opportunity to become more independent. Right. Well, because independence is sort of amorphous and death is death and death is always going to get the bigger ratings. But this idea that you can control everything is really behind all these fears. You know, Abe Lincoln had four kids and one of them made it to adulthood and nobody said, what a terrible dad. Oh, my God. He is so irresponsible because everybody had a kid who didn't make it or two kids or three kids. And when everybody shared that horrible, sad fate, there was a lot of empathy 
because it was recognized that that the world is not yours to fashion, right? You cannot do everything. You cannot, I mean, you, you didn't have antibiotics then, much less, you know, all the other life-saving treatments that we have and, and vaccinations, et cetera. And so, you know, there was a, a sense that we are not in control. But as the world has become more safe, so obviously more kids make it to adulthood, so the fear that yours might not is also a fear that you'll have done something wrong because everybody else has managed to do it. And so the empathy for somebody whose child doesn't make it is missing. And instead, there's all the blame, including the self-blame. And so with this idea that we can control fate, which is not true, that's why it's called fate, (laughs) comes this overweening belief that we better watch everything and make everything happen. And we can watch everything. I mean, we have this weird technological ability, aside from all the parents on the playground, on the slide with their kids that you were talking about at the top of this interview, that we also have tracking devices and listening devices and watching devices and nanny cams. And we really have a kind of omniscience that was completely unfathomable, even I'd say 20 years ago. You know, we didn't have tracking devices. Harry Potter finds a marauder's map and he's amazed because he can see where people are by looking at the map. And now that's like, yeah, that's called where's my iPhone, (laughs) you know? So once you think that you have this omniscience, with omniscience used to come omnipotence, right? They, They used to be, it's like love and marriage. They used to be wedded together and they're not anymore. And yet the blame is still there. If you're omniscient, How come you're not omnipotent? How come something bad happened to your kids? So to prevent the smallest bad, we are always watching our kids. And gosh, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal about six months ago. It was interviewing parents about tracking their kids. And one of the moms that was interviewed said when she was growing up and she was like eight years old, which is the age of her daughter now, the thing she loved doing most was going down to the creek by herself and looking for cool stones or, I don't know, fossils or flowers, whatever it was. She just cherished that time. I I had time like that when I was a kid too. And now her kid is eight and she desperately wants to give her child the same freedom that she loved so much and felt was so formative. So she got her kid this like gizmo watch that you can press it and it dials a few numbers. And sure enough, when her daughter was out riding her bike, the chain came off the bike. And so the daughter could press a button and the dad got over there lickety split and fixed the bike chain. Now, what's interesting to me is that she thinks that she's giving her daughter the same experience she had, but I don't. (laughs) I mean, I, I think you see what I think is different, which is that there's no independence in being able to immediately summon your dad to fix the problem. Just as you, you know, you fell off your bike and you knew the same thing. And so The mom is happy that she thinks she can give her kid independence while not really giving it to her and while exercising what we were just talking about before, the omniscience and the omnipotence. Oh my gosh, I can see that you fell off your bike. Oh my gosh, I can come and fix it immediately. That's a different world. And if you think that that's going to create the same kinds of outcomes as actual independence, why would you? You know, kids growing up in different circumstances grow up differently. Let's just put it that way. Oh, absolutely. It's interesting. It's like parents want to create like a Garden of Eden type scenario in which no harm can ever come to their child, but that's not how their child will ever become independent, right? Oh, if you excuse can... me. It didn't even happen in Garden of Eden. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Well, they... Right, right. Childbirth, painful, have to work for the rest of your life. Well, so they the ate the fruit of, of the tree. Yeah. Yeah, like lasted for like the blink of an eye. And ever <laughs> since then, it's been, you know, terror and turmoil. That is true. 
I want to touch on something you just said, which is I'm trying to figure out how, from my own personal perspective, and I, I know that you have a wealth of knowledge about this, how widespread this issue is outside of, let's say, my class, right? Because I came from a middle class background. You know, I have a college degree, a master's. So the friends that I hang out with, while there is some economic strata there, like I am kind of hanging out with the same kinds of people repeatedly. And so to me, I'm wondering if it is something that is affecting only certain economic strata of society or even certain pockets, urban versus rural. How widespread in your experience is this? Is it only certain categories of adults and children who are kind of under this bubble of hyper-protection or is it affecting all aspects of our society equally? Oh, I don't know if it's affecting everybody absolutely equally, but let's talk about a couple of things that I do know. There was this study done at Cornell a couple of years ago of, I think about, I wish I could remember if it was 1,500 or 3,000, but it was a ton of families across the economic strata. And one of the questions they asked is, you're busy making dinner and your little daughter is drawing nearby you. And she says, mommy, stop, let's draw together. What do you do? And across the economic spectrum, the answer was, if you're a good parent, you drop what you're doing and you go and draw with your daughter to show her that you're interested, that you support her, that you think she's great, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason it ended up being a front page story in the Times, New York Times, which it was, is that it showed that what's probably started as an upper middle class way of raising kids, you know, you have the nannies, you have full-time help, you have, or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, you know, you, you had the wherewithal to be with your kids and watch them and supposedly enrich every moment. But it has drifted down to the entire culture. Whether you have the means to do this or not, the goal at this moment is to be a... Um, I, I hate using the word helicopter parent because it sounds like I'm down on the parents. And I really, really am not because I'm part helicopter <laughs> on my mom's side. And also... It's the culture. I mean, why was I taking my kids to this school, you know, walking with them even up to fifth grade when my mom let me walk at age five? It's because back then the norm was to let your kids go. And now the norm is not to. So to say that it's individual, crazy, annoying, hyper vigilant nut jobs is absolutely wrong because it is an entire culture that has normalized never taking our eyes off our kids. And one of the things you just asked was, is it also rural or urban or whatever? And there was an article on Let Grow in the superintendent's magazine, school superintendent's magazine, because we'll talk about it later. There's two free school initiatives that we suggest uh, schools try that make kids way more independent and they don't take class time. They're free. So I got a call from this guy, Stu, Stu Moore in Moscow. I was like, Moscow? He's like, Moscow, Kansas. Okay. And he wanted to do the Let Grow project, which is where kids get the homework assignment uh, go home and do something by yourself that you haven't done before, you know, and it could be walk the dog or ride your bike to the store or whatever. And, and he wanted to do it at his school. And the population in Moscow, Kansas is 299. So, so I'm like, okay, why are you calling me? You know, I mean, if there's any place that sounds like it's sort of 4-H and freedom, it's Moscow, Kansas. And he said, because where he sits in his superintendent's office in the elementary school, he can look out and see a bunch of kids' homes. And then he sees the garage doors open and the parents driving the kids from the houses he can see from his office to the school. And that did not used to happen. 
and now it is the norm. And what he really wanted, which is the same thing I want, which is for parents to recognize that like your kids deserve some independence, they can handle some independence, and you deserve some independence. You don't have to drive your kid two blocks every morning in Moscow, Kansas, or Wilmette, Illinois, where I grew up, or New York City, where I live now. So I don't see it as being just an upper middle class problem. And I'll just tell you one other story, which is that I was in Kansas talking to a convention of after-school care providers. And it turned out that half of the programs are private and half of them are funded by the state. I'm not sure it's exactly 50-50, but the ones that are provided by the state have a rule, which is that for the first 90 minutes after school, the kids have to do their homework. And so that means that even if you're done with your homework, (laughs) you are sitting at a table in the cafeteria for an hour and a half because we don't want those children left behind. But of course, I think that is children left behind. I think in our desire to make sure that everybody's doing great and that they're constantly supervised and their life is constantly enriched by some kind of academic or adult-led activity, what you're forgetting is that they would have a lot more fun, (laughs) a lot more exercise, and I would say they would grow a lot more intellectually, academically, emotionally, and socially if you let them play on the playground. Because we're all influenced by our community. None of us can be completely individual actors, right? We're influenced and we're going to believe in a morality that is kind of influenced by everyone around us, right? Like we don't want to be judged by our neighbors and our neighbors don't want to be judged by us. And so we kind of are all moving like a herd in a certain direction or another direction. And it really seems like the lens through which we view moral parenting has just shifted. It has gone from you're a good parent 50 years ago. If you let your child go out and run and be like all the other kids, right? You'd be the weirdo in 1950 if all the other children were playing around and you were the one parent who was driving your kid to and from school. You would be ostracized. You would be the one who people would be talking about and saying, oh, what's what's wrong with Jane and Jim? Why are they driving their kid to school? Every other child is allowed to walk and play and do whatever fun little 1950s games kids would play, right? But now because the kind of the herd has moved somewhere else, the morality has shifted. And now if you're the one parent who lets their child walk to school, you're the outcast. And and it's not just social ostracization. (laughs) That's a tongue tie. But it also has legal ramifications. I want to share this story from a 2015 New Yorker article that you were featured in. It was written by uh, Lizzie Whittacombe, Mother May I. And it starts with a story from Silver Springs, Maryland, quote, Drivers at a busy intersection witnessed a spectacle you don't see much these days outside of the Hunger Games franchise. Two children aged 10 and 6 walking alone. An onlooker alerted the police. The cops scooped up the kids, drove them home in a patrol car, and reprimanded their father, Alexander, a physicist at the National Institutes of Health. Within an hour, five squad cars had arrived. Alexander insisted that he was not guilty of negligence. He'd dropped off the kids at a nearby park with the idea that they would walk home. He and his wife are devotees of free-range kids, end quote. And these are not uncommon stories. There's a more recent one on your website in which a 10 and 8-year-old walks 600 yards away from home to collect rocks at the end of an upper middle class street. A neighbor called 911 to report unsupervised children. They were escorted home 600 yards by the fire department who told the children's parents that they legally had to report the incident to the sheriff's department and they may receive a call from Child Protective Services as a result. And, you know, this is a story, like I said, featured on your website. So 
before we get to the the projects that that are you know free and can be done at school and after school, I want to talk a little bit about how the free range kids movement started specifically um, the Bill of Children's Rights, and then how the Let Grow organization that you co-founded with Daniel Shuckman, Peter Gray, and Jonathan Haidt. What are some of the actions that Let Grow is doing on the legal front to make it so that parents aren't potentially going to be arrested or have their children taken away from them if they want to now give these children some tiny piece of freedom to walk down their own street? Right. So first of all, let's say that most parents will never be arrested. (laughs) Thank God for letting their kids uh, walk down the street or play in the yard or go to the pool or whatever. But I have highlighted those cases that I hear about, and I I feel like I hear about them all um, over the last 10 years because they outrage me. The idea that somebody could mistake a parent who trusts their kid with some independence and that could be trust them because they want them to be free range and, you know, have the fun of going to the creek. Or it could be because they're working two jobs and you don't have money for a babysitter. And I trust my seven-year-old to be at home for a couple hours after school. And who, who dare judge me because of that? The cases are rare, but I highlight them because I want the culture to change. And the way I want the culture to change is to stop thinking that anytime a child is unsupervised, that means that a parent is guilty of neglect. And so happily for me, in 2018, Utah became, there was a guy who'd heard me give my speech and he went home and he worked with the state legislature to pass the free range parenting law. Uh, which said it is not neglect to let your kid, you know, walk outside, play outside, wait briefly in a car while you run a little errand or come home with a latchkey, you know, stay home alone. If you know your kid and you're not putting them in obvious or statistically likely danger, then that's not neglect. And I love that law. And I'm thrilled that it passed because it gave some momentum to this movement to the point where this year we have five or six states that are considering what we now call reasonable childhood independence bills. And these bills make sure that letting your kid have freedom is not mistaken for neglect, nor is poverty mistaken for neglect. Because as I said, there are stories that I also chronicle on the site where, like there was one in Houston a couple of years ago, a mom got a job interview and she was so thrilled, but she had her two kids with her and she didn't have a husband and she didn't have a grandma and she didn't, couldn't afford a babysitter. And so she took the kids with her to the mall where the interview was being conducted at the food court. And she had them sit uh, you know, a few tables away so she could see them, but she didn't say like, don't interrupt me while I'm having this interview. And somebody saw the kids by themselves and the mom was arrested and it became a, thank goodness, a cause celeb because then you know, there was a lot of support and empathy from mom making this decision. And recently there was a, a case in Ohio, which was kind of similar. It was a mom was working at an evening shift at the Pizza Hut or no, at Little Caesars, and her children were ages 10 and 2 at the Motel 6 down the way. Somebody called the police. The police came and saw the kids by themselves. They arrested the mom. They threw her in jail, as if that's going to make life better for those little kids, by the way. Oh, mom's in jail, and now here she is working at minimum wage job, and she's going to have to pay a fine and bail herself out, et cetera, et cetera. That caught the public's attention, too, in a great way, in that people said, Look, it's not like she was leaving the kids to go, uh, you know, play the slots at uh, Harrah's. She was doing what she could to make a living and to make a life for her kids. And I'm happy to say that there was a GoFundMe that got her a lot of money, enough to buy a house now in Ohio and maybe even pay for some babysitting. So we just want to make sure that we're a little more supportive as opposed to vindictive towards any parents who, by choice or necessity, 
do not have their eyes on their kids 24-7. And it can affect people from lower income levels in much harsher ways, especially because one, they are put in positions more often, let's say, of having no choice but to leave their children alone, even in safe settings, right? Like there's not much that a 10 and a three-year-old can get up to in a motel, at least not anything that any normal person would think would be potentially dangerous, but that's where we are. But I want to talk about one of the pillars of the Let Grow Project and how it's helping children deal with their anxiety. There's a video that I'll put in the show notes from Let Grow that discusses some of the activities that your organization encourages children to participate in to lessen their anxiety and increase their confidence. And this list of projects includes planting a garden, playing in the yard, walking the dog, visiting a neighbor, playing in the rain, making dinner, washing the car, baking a cake, having a lemonade stand. And this list is rather surprising to me, although perhaps it shouldn't be after this conversation, because these are are pretty benign activities that were all normal, even as recently as when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. And I guess even with all the research that I've been doing up until this interview, I hadn't realized it had gotten that bad. That list had to be made. Bake a cake, like help your parents with dinner, make a lemonade stand. And I think one of the most instructive parts from that video is one of the mothers featured in it. Now, again, I want the audience to remember the list that I just read out when when they're hearing this quote, quote, It was hard to say yes at first, but once I said yes, I trusted him, my son, to try. It let me give him more independence and realize that he can do things on his own and I don't have to worry about his every move, end quote. And again, it feels like this childhood anxiety is trickle down, that they're absorbing anxiety from their parents who simply no longer believe that their children are capable of even the smallest of tasks. That's why I can wake up every morning for 13 years since I let my son ride the subway by himself and think about this topic because it is really, Peter Gray compares it to foot binding. It's like for a thousand years, you know, people thought it was a great idea to break little girls' feet and sort of point them downwards and end up with them hopefully being just three or four inches long and have them crippled. And that was how you raised a child that was beautiful and desirable. And, you know, a culture can become convinced of some very strange things. And I'll tell you two stories. I once interviewed a boy who was a third grader, I think, or second grader, like eight years old. And I asked him for his Let Grow project. And let's define that again. The Let Grow project is when kids go home with the homework assignment, go home and do something on your own without your parents. And we give that list. But of course, the list is so scratch the surface. You could do so many different things, you know, depending on where you are and temperature and season, you could go sledding, you could go ice skating, you could go, you know, run an errand, you could go to your uncles in the next town. I mean, obviously, you could do anything doesn't have to be what's on the list. But this kid's desire was to get himself to karate. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. Is this a bike ride? Are you going to walk there? Are you going to have a scooter? How are you going to get there? And he looked at me and he's like, well, no, I'll, I'll open the car door and then I'll look very carefully both ways to make sure there's nobody coming. And then I'll close the car door and then I'll walk into my karate school while my mom parks the car. So that to me you know, and I used it for like a couple of years as this amazing story, but it, it struck me as a, just a one-off. But then the other day, I heard from a very proud grandfather who had just heard about the Let Grow Project. They're doing it on Staten Island. It's great. And his daughter had told him that, okay, you know, she's been reading up on the Let Grow Project. She decided to do it with her daughter too. Her daughter's 10, just started swimming lessons at the YMCA. The first time they were there was for her to try out and figure out which class she'd be in. But now it was the day for her to start her class. The mom parked a car 
And the daughter got out and said, mom, I'd like to go in by myself. And the mother was like, mm, okay. And she lets her go in. And then she sat there in the car the whole time thinking, well, what if she gets lost? Or what if she's unhappy or confused? And shouldn't I be in there with her? And so I, I didn't realize that it's way more common. I mean, like, these are two things that I've heard and two people who were proud of what they were doing, you know, excited about this new independence that they were experiencing. That must be where we're at. And I had a list of seventh graders in a suburb, a far suburb of New York, were asked by their teacher who was doing the Let Grow project, and she was doing it 20 times in one year, to say, what Let Grow project would they like to do, but they were a little hesitant to try? And so I'm just going to read you what they wrote. These are seventh graders, so that means that they are 12 or 13 years old. Uh, I wasn't comfortable going into a crowded store with a bunch of strangers without my mom. So that's interesting because people, you know, shoppers are already imagined as just, I guess they are strangers, but I don't think of like, oh, I'm going into a den of strangers. I think I'm going into a store. I was hesitant to try walking my dog alone because I was scared that he would get loose from the leash or a scary man would take me. I was afraid to climb a tree because I was scared I was going to fall and break a bone. I wanted to try doing a wheelie on my bike, but I was scared I might hurt myself. These are all different kids. I was afraid to try and cook because there's an open flame and I could get hurt. And then another kid wrote, I was hesitant to use a sharp knife as my parents had never let me before. And when I spoke to the teacher, she's the, she's the health teacher, so she has all the seventh graders, which is 240 of them. Three of the kids had written that they were never allowed to use knives. So things have changed is all I can tell you. It's, it's not weird little stories from here and there. You know, they're driving the kids two blocks in Moscow, Kansas, and they're not letting their 12-year-olds use a knife. And their 10-year-olds are dreaming of the, all the joy and the independence, the, the hero's journey of going into the YMCA without a mom. Wow. You know, if, <laughs> I mean, there's a, <laughs> I mean, I'm a little dumbfounded. I mean, why, why, this, why, this, <laughs> why this upsets me is, I, I mentioned this before we were recording the, the talk that I had with Catherine Burblesing in the previous episode. She's the headmistress and founder of the Michaela School in Britain, which is known as Britain's strictest school, right? And it's, it's in a more dangerous neighborhood that's in a lower income portion of Britain, you know, where stabbings and other dangerous things for children happen, not with, you know, an amazing frequency, but more frequency than anywhere else in London. And what can often happen with these children in other schools, right, in schools that maybe don't care as much about these kids, is that the teachers in those scenarios outside of Michaela and other public schools will have so much sympathy for what these children are going through that they won't hold the children to standards of finish your homework, make sure that you're on time, other things. Because as Catherine in that interview points out, they have so much sympathy for the child. They don't want to put the child through anything that they feel might be a, a step above, right? Oh, I, I don't want to pile on. This child already has a rough enough time, right? And in that way, they're failing the child by kind of abandoning them. And what Catherine has kind of proven with her school is that her children are all from the same background or all from these dangerous neighborhoods or from perhaps even single parent homes and lower income strata. And yet her kids in this exact same neighborhood are outperforming all the children of Britain on average by three or four to one, right? And so why I think that story kind of upsets me as much as this one is that children are not born into this world one way or the other, but they are made by the adults around them, right? And so children are capable of achieving a great deal, whether it's independence from their parents, whether it's cooking a meal, whether it's performing really well in a test or walking to karate class, you know, by themselves, they get these fears or they get this lack of confidence 
because they absorb it from the adults around them. And why it's so frustrating to me is I'm very empathetic for the parents who were so anxious about their kids because they absorbed it somewhere along the way. But it's just so tragic to hear these quotes from these children because I know that they didn't come up with them on their own. They feel that a a stove is dangerous or that strangers are all going to kidnap them because of what they heard somewhere from someone two or three decades older than them. And it just, it upsets me. Yeah, it upsets me too. But that's why we have Let Grow because- Yes, (laughs) let's talk about Let Grow. let's talk about it because it's pretty straightforward. I mean, our belief is that kids are smarter and safer and actually stronger than our culture gives them credit for. And so we have two school initiatives. And like I said, they're both free that we think really reverse things and they do it fast and they do it without a lot of class time. And one is, as we discussed, the Let Grow Project. And the reason that's such a big deal is that when the parent says, oh, well, you ought to do it for homework, I guess I have to let you go. And they let you, the kid, walk yourself to karate or make the dinner or go to grandma's or babysit or stay home with your you know, younger sibling for just a short time. But especially when they send you out of the house, you know, when you ride your bike or get on your skateboard or whatever, that changes the parents so much. When the kid comes home and they are ecstatic for a couple of reasons. One, it's exhilarating to be out there. The world is suddenly yours. Two is that your parents trusted you. There's this exercise you can do. It's like, think about the people who've had the most influence on your life, the ones who like the wind beneath your wings. Those are the people who, when you were young and and older, but starting when you're young, believed in you and they thought you could do something that you didn't know. It sounds like the lady at this English school as well. They thought like, you know, you're capable of great things and I'm going to watch because I believe you can do it. That feels so great. So the kid comes home feeling just at one with the world because it's theirs now and you trusted them. And then that's what changes the parents. Nothing we can say, no statistics, no point oh oh point one four children will be murdered. You know, it's like all they hear is murder. What you need to do as a parent is to see your child succeed at something without you. And it's like the Grinch, if we're allowed to reference Dr. Seuss anymore. But your heart grows three sizes that day, right? This is the kid who, you know, she went to the store and she came home with the juice. That's my kid. I mean, there's actually a fantastic commercial now in New Zealand about a kid who goes and gets the milk and the parents are biting their nails and terrified because they're part of this era. But when the kid comes home, everybody is so happy. And that's a commercial, but I've seen it in real life over and over again. I did a television show where I took, where I went to extraordinarily anxious families and sat with the parents while I sent the kids to play in the woods or to run an errand or to start a little carnival down the street or whatever it was, go walk through the mall. When the TV show or when the actual life experience for any parent is over and they see their kid do something They cannot go backwards. They have just, they're ecstatic. And it's sort of like the first time you see your kid walk. You're so happy and you're excited and something is kicking in as it should be. And and you don't say, well, that was great. And so tomorrow we're going back to crawling, okay? Because, you know, walking is, you're, you're just too far from the ground. And, you know, when you crawl, you have four points that are touching the ground. So the reason I push it so hard, and I hope your listeners will go to Let Grow and look for the Let Grow project is because it works (laughs) and it doesn't take class time. The teachers just hand out this little assignment. And then if they want to, they can have the kids write about it or make a video about it or a song about it or a poster. doesn't matter. The point is that it changes the parents and it changes the kids. And you have to change them both for anything to happen because a kid feels independent and the parent won't let them go out. That doesn't help. 
So there's the Let Grow Project. And then the other thing that we highly recommend is the Let Grow Play Club, whereby a school stays open before or after school or both for free play amongst all the ages. There's no devices. Nobody's on any electronics, but there's a bunch of balls on the yard or in the gym or wherever you have it. And there's cardboard boxes and there's jump ropes and maybe jacks. I don't know. Whatever you got. Junk. Old suitcases. And there was just a, a study published last week in the International Journal of Play that said that, you know, something that kids also aren't getting, aside from not getting the normal independence that kids have had for eons until recently, is that they're not in mixed age groups anymore. And, you know, we're, we're really concerned about teaching social emotional skills to kids. I mean, that's part of the curriculum in a lot of schools. But that sort of happens naturally when you have different age kids playing together, because like in after school programs in general or in the little league or soccer or, or whatever, it's usually there's the 12 year old league and then there's the 13 year old league. But when you have a 12 year old and they're playing baseball with a six year old on the playground, they're going to throw the ball soft. Right. And then the kid is going to, you know, swing and I would guess miss because that's what six year olds do. And so two things are happening. One is the 12 year old is developing a little bit of compassion and empathy that sort of kicks in when there's a little kid to play with. And then the six-year-old, instead of crying and throwing down his bat and being a baby, sort of like you falling off your bike, now is the chance for them to show like this 12-year-old, look at, I'm not a baby. I'm six. You know, I can hold myself together. I'm going to go to the back of the line and wait for my turn. And so the little kids are learning executive function and the older kids are learning compassion and empathy and a little bit of leadership. And kids need this experience. And Mother Nature assumed that they would always get it because there would always be a bunch of children around. But what we've done is we've made things so expensive and separate that everybody's going to their own exact activity for their own exact group that they don't have a lot of chance that's unstructured where they have to figure out what they're doing and they have to solve the arguments and they have to you know, create the rules. When you have all that happening, kids are learning all these essential skills that they will need as students and as grownups and as husbands and wives. And once again, it, all it costs is the price of keeping your school open for an hour or two before or after school and somebody there to watch them like a lifeguard. Let Grow would find a very sympathetic audience in Montessori schools. Two of the guests that I had in an earlier episode were Ray Gern and Matt Bateman of Higher Ground Education, a network of Montessori schools in California. And a foundational pillar of Montessori is mixed age learning for the exact reasons that you just laid out. It gives the older children an opportunity to kind of pass on and mentor smaller ones. But even more importantly, as you said, little children look up to children who are even just a couple years older than them and kind of desperately want to impress them. And what what that requires, as you said, is instead of having that parent-child or adult-child relationship where they might begin to cry or want kind of approval, they don't want to look, quote-unquote, soft in front of like a nine-year-old if they're six. And you're right. You said something that is so obvious when I heard it, but I hadn't really considered it. What we're experiencing now by separating children into just only six-year-olds with six-year-olds or only 10-year-olds with 10-year-olds is the aberration. This is not normal, but yet we've come as a society to believe that it is. So I think the Let Grow Play Club is such a wonderful thing for children to have because it really returns them to something that was kind of fundamental to being a child until recently. Exactly. You know, I mean, segregation is usually a bad idea, right? (laughs) Right. And we've been doing age segregation. 
So for parents who are interested in both of those uh, initiatives, the Let Grow Project and the Let Grow Play Club, obviously they can go to the Let Grow website, which I'll put in the show notes. But is it something where they need to approach the school or approach their teachers individually or go to the administration? What's the best way for parents who are interested in the Let Grow Project to get their schools involved? I would say if they have a good relationship with any of those, that's who you'd start with is somebody who, you know, who's going to listen to you and who doesn't think that you're saying you must do this or otherwise, you know, you're an asshole. That, that'd be bad, right? But I think, you know, if you look on the site, what's neat is that for the Play Club, we have a couple of videos. I think we have two videos. And then also for the Let Grow Project, we have a couple of videos and there's some more on YouTube. And you can just look at these and have somebody at the school look at them and they sort of speak for themselves. They're just labor non-intensive and so time non-intensive that there's sort of no downside. And obviously this has been a very strange school year, but pretty soon it's going to be a normal school year again. And if you want kids to sort of get their groove back, I don't think tying them to their chairs to make up for the lost academic time is going to be the best way to do it. I'd say have kids come to school, have a lot of time for free play, especially if you don't have it during the school day, then you can do this before or after school, the play club. And then just let them keep the growth going. I'm sure kids have been doing more things during COVID than they were doing before. I've heard from a lot of parents, you know, the kids are helping out around the house or they're cooking or they're cleaning a little more. So keep that good part of COVID going by having them, you know, venture a little further or make the whole dinner instead of the snack or babysit or be in charge of their own backpack in the morning. I mean, just, you know, the one decent thing about COVID was that parents were so outrageously strapped that some things had to go. And one of the things that went was a ton of supervised structured activities. And so don't rush to push those all back. Give your kids some chance to just figure out what they like and prove who they are. It seems to really come down to fighting those instincts that we have to kind of overprotect children when, in fact, the very opposite thing is, is what's going to help them the most. And I imagine it's also about like finding community outside of school with other parents that share similar goals for their children and similar ideals. I imagine it's about finding a kind of sympathetic pod, you know, to use some COVID language of parents who want to experience that together. And if you can get even part of your neighborhood in on it, right, then you can normalize children playing on the street. Then parents and other adults won't automatically reach for the phone to call, you know, the fire department, right? Right. Now, once it's normalized again, it's normal. I mean, we've heard from towns where there was a town in Connecticut that did the Let Grow Project with all the kids from K through fifth grade. And one kid went to the market and the the supervisor there was like, sort of dumbfounded. What's this kid doing here by himself? And the clerks were worried. And finally, somebody went over to him and said, what's going on here? Why are you here without a parent or an adult? And he said, oh, I'm doing my like grow project. And they're like, what's that? And he explained, oh, I have to do something by myself. And they're like, hmm, all right. And then after that, as other kids started coming in, well, that was just normal. Okay. Oh, if they're doing their like, oh, it's a let grow kid. And so that's how you renormalize independence. And in fact, in that same town, because the parents had been hearing let grow, let grow, let grow from their school. And I also spoke there once. It was Halloween, like a year ago, not during COVID, but before. And the parents had taken their kids to the downtown where you go and you get us, I don't know, a Snickers from the dry cleaner and a Snickers from the pizza place or whatever. And it was kind of cold and kind of wet. And one of the parents said, do you think we could just like go into this cafe and have them go around? It's this tiny little town. And one of the other parents said, yeah, let grow. And because they had the phrase, it was a way to 
makes sense for everybody. Oh, this is a let grow thing. We're letting grow as opposed to, oh, we're being irresponsible or, oh, does anybody do that? Once, you know, the community has been exposed to this idea, including the phrase, then it starts seeming normal again. So I would say either get your school to do these projects, you know, the project of the play club and the play club, you could just start in your own backyard with a bunch of kids or just, I also thought like there should be a play date work date where the parents get together like me. So bored all the time at home with my computer. If I brought it over to a friend's house and everybody let their kids play outside while they were working, then the kids have something to do. And again, doesn't have to be the exact same age. And you have somebody to complain to when you're bored and don't feel like writing your blog post for that day, for instance. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Hypothetically, Hypothetically, yes. Mm -hmm. Only hypothetically. It sounds like the key ingredient there is that when the parents are working together or just hanging out together while the children are playing, it's instrumental that the parents don't watch the kids. Correct. Right. Oh, here's, here's another thing that I would suggest is on Facebook, we have a page called Raising Independent Kids. We used to call it No More Helicopter Parents, but that was just for SEO purposes and it sounded too mean. So now it's raising independent kids. And if you go there, you can ask, hey, anybody else in Indiana or whatever? I realize that Indiana is a big state and there might be somebody at the south and northern tips. But you can ask and, and see if somebody says, oh, yeah, I live near that school. I'd love to let my kids play, too. That's really great. And I know that Free Range Kids had this, maybe Lecro is doing something similar, where a child can have an ID card that identifies them as. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, you know, it's it's not even that serious. It's an ID card sounds like it's government issued. But in fact, yeah, if you go to Let Grow and you go to the bottom and you click on Let Grow Kid Card, it's a cute little card that you cut, you know, you print out and you cut it out. Yeah, I'm not lost or neglected. I'm a Let Grow Kid. I have the freedom to explore, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's a, the kid signs it, the parent signs it. And then there's a phone number so that if somebody stops the kid, they can call the parent who says, yes, I actually do want my kid to be out there gathering berries, right? Dancing, frolicking in the sunbeams. So, you know, it's mostly funny, but I got the idea because one mom had written to me and said that after her son had been stopped a couple of times when he was blackberry picking, she just made him a little ID card that says, yes, I know he's out there. Thank you very much. I want him out there. It's good for him. And so that's what these cards are too. And it's such a brilliant idea because it is a 21st century solution to a uniquely 21st century problem, which is that like, we've kind of become obsessed with credentialism. We've kind of become obsessed with things that are, oh, it's official, right? Like that for some reason now in the 21st century, if we know something is official or it's an official organization, we can kind of just check that box in our minds and then go on our merry way. So there's something that is almost magical about giving a child that card so that they can hand it to an adult if the adult is wary. And then it's like, oh, wow, okay. Oh, there's an organization. Oh, I can Google it. This is a real thing. Mm-hmm, oh, wow. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a movement, right? And so mm-hmm. it's not- oh, they keep passing laws. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And so it's not just about, oh, this one parent is quote unquote neglectful parent. It's, oh, this parent is part of something larger. And so I think that that is, I mean, it's just a brilliant idea, but I don't mean to drown you in praise. Uh, you can drown me like uh, all these <laughs> ideas, like frankly, the Lecro project, not my idea. That was a sixth grade teacher in Manhattan. Lecro Play Club, invented by Peter Gray. Lecro Kid Card, somebody wrote to me. Lecro Legislation, you know, the reasonable childhood independence bills that we're introducing. Somebody else wrote to me and said, why don't you try passing a law? All I am is like the middle of the tent pole and people send me ideas and then I go, okay, and then I send them back out again. But it's so little is my own brain. It's just smart people writing to me and making great suggestions. 
Yeah. I mean, it's just so heartening that so many people have come together to be part of this movement, which I think is really vital right now. Because as we've talked about in this conversation, and, and as I know that you know and care about very deeply, it's really important that we allow children the ability to grow independent, to become anti-fragile, so to speak. And although you're just one pillar, right, of an entire building of individuals who are involved in this, I'm glad that I got the chance to speak with you today because I think it's a really valuable movement that you're a part of, and I really value what you're doing. Mm, So (laughs) there's a question. Well, you're very welcome. There's a question that I ask each guest at the end of the show, and so I would like to put it to you as well. Uh Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. So here's that question. We are limited, Lenore, as individuals in all sorts of ways, right? We're limited in our time and our energy and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned, caring person, be they a parent or not, can't be thinking of every person, every group of people all the time, right? It's just impossible. The world is too big. There's too much going on. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now, concrete or abstract, that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? I'll tell you one individual that I empathize with, and it's the mom whose kid fell in the gorilla cage in, I think it was Cincinnati about, I don't know, three or four years ago. It was a huge story. Because the child had fallen in, they had to kill the gorilla because they couldn't tranquilize it because it wouldn't get tranquil fast enough. And in the meantime, it could possibly kill the child. And everybody was hating on her and there were memes against her. And, you know, I uh, gorilla memes that said, I'm dead because this bitch didn't watch her child, that kind of thing. And the reason I empathize with is because people are acting as if she should have been completely aware that, of course, children are always falling into the gorilla cage. And of course, there's like barely anything around the gorilla cage. And why weren't you watching your kids like a hawk? And that's the kind of parent judging that's just driving me crazy. Obviously, if she thought that the zoo was dangerous, there would be no children at the zoo, right? If everybody thought that it was easy to tumble into the cages of wild animals. So I empathize with parents who've had something tragic happen and have felt the weight of judgment upon them. I think that's a wonderful sentiment. And thank you again, Lenore, for joining us today. Thank you for the work that you're doing with Free Range Kids and Let Grow and all the other people you're working with. And I think children deserve more independence. So keep on what you're doing and thank you for your time. 